and welcome to Nutrition 411, the podcast, a special podcast series led by registered dietitian and nutritionist Lisa Jones. The views of the speakers are their own and do not reflect the views of their respective institutions or consultant 360. Hello, and welcome to Nutrition 411, the podcast where we communicate the information you need to know now about the science, psychology, and strategies behind the practice of dietetics. Today's podcast is all about the FDA. We have Diana Monaco with us here today. She is a dietitian, but also a 30-year employee with the Food and Drug Administration. She works as a health communication specialist, and she covers the human and animal foods media. So a wealth of information here with us today. I just want to say quickly, hi, Diana. Thank you so much for coming. Hi, how are you? Yeah, Thank so you. Thank great. You <laughs> I, want to, I do want to give your depth of knowledge more credit here. And I do want to talk a little bit about your degree first. Okay. You have a, Diana has a degree in public relations and journalism and a degree in nutrition and dietetics, both from Buffalo State College, now Buffalo State University. She also has 26 years as an adjunct instructor in the nutrition department at Buffalo State University, preceptor to over 40 dietetic nursing and public health students. So I just want to give you a round of applause. Thank you. (laughs) That is a huge accomplishment and a great deal of experience. And again, so excited just to hear what you have to bring, because I believe that the FDA there's so many different things that come out. It's so hard for dietitians and nutrition professionals to keep up with this information. So just having you here to break it down and give us the latest and greatest is just amazing. So let's start, shall we? All you right, ready? Good. Yep, I am. Okay. I have a couple of questions for you. And oh. the first one is, how can dietitians partner with the FDA as a resource to help support their patients or clients in their nutrition management and overall health goals? That's a great question. You know, we consider the dietitians a key stakeholder um, as a conduit between FDA and and the consumers and the patients that they're working with. So we have resources um, on the importance of good nutrition, for example, on a variety of audiences. So, you know, if you're working with children or the youth or parents or seniors or women, we have all different kinds of information kind of targeted right to them and it helps the health educator. We have a lot of information on the nutrition facts label, um, which is an important tool. It has a scientific base to it. And the label is one of the ways, one of the tools that dietitians use to work with their patients and clients um, so they make better food choices. So the FDA has come up with all different kinds of ways to kind of present that, right? And so we have an interactive nutrition um, facts label online. So let's say if you were told that you have high cholesterol, You could go online, you could look up cholesterol, it'll show you where it is on the label, it'll show you what foods it has, um, you know, that have cholesterol in it, the health consequences. And so they could do this on their own time consumers, and it goes in addition to what the dietitian is doing. So, you know, both of them are working at the same 
goal. We have help educators toolkits um, that have all different kinds of downloadable materials that the health educator can use. We have video. We do a lot of video. We have our actually our own video um, uh, studio at the agency, and um, and it's called Behind the Scenes, and it explains the how to read the food label. You know, it seems like a simple thing when you're looking at it, but it really has a lot of information there. So it translates it all. And we also translate it into other languages as well. So, you know, Spanish being one of them. We also, because information is constantly changing, we actually had a couple changes last January to the food label. We have continuing medical education programs, and they're for free, and physicians could take them, healthcare professionals could take them, and then they could get CEUs for that. We have a resource library that, again, uh, you could download all different kinds of information, not only on the food label, but on dietary supplements, on food safety. We have all different kinds of stuff talking about food safety on food safety. Um, dietitians really are the key in teaching that. You know, we saw that, especially during the pandemic, how important it was to wash your hands and and to be aware of you know what you were doing and we have information for example for pregnant women and it, we have booklets it's called food safety for pregnant women and it goes over not only explaining why food safety is critical for the pregnant woman and her unborn child but also what kind of low risk and high risk foods that she should be eating how to handle the food safely you know all of those kind of things so you know, I could probably talk for another whatever 20 minutes, but we really do have so many resources and we're really trying to expand how, because not everybody um, looks at printed materials. Some people like videos better. Some people like, you know, social media. Some people like, you know, um, you know, something interactive. And so it's a nice way to kind of figure out what will work with the patients. Yes, Diana, I'm listening to, I'm writing all these things down as you were talking. Okay. It is a vast amount of information. And I think like the easiest thing to do is probably for a dietitian, somebody listening to this podcast is to bookmark this site because right. just the CME stuff, like a lot of people don't know. I bet you there's so many things that people didn't know that you had there available. So yeah. just having that there. And then the fact that it's kind it sounds like it's constantly updated, which sounds like a job in itself to make sure all these updates are happening. Right. And I'm very impressed with your studio. I think that's really cool. Yes. Yeah. We know it's kind of neat, right? <laughs> you do all kinds of things in there. And, and you know, and, it, and it's important to, to reach people in different ways. It really is. So, you know, video is the new thing, you know, not new, new, but it's one of the things that people really like. They like that better than, you know, reading pages and pages of material. They like to just have it kind of, you know, done in a visual way. Oh, especially if you're a visual learner and then that helps too. Like maybe if you read it, digest the information that way and then go back and also watch the video. I think it's kind of just helps to reinforce force yeah. that particular information. And, and then you have like something for everyone, which right. is great. And the dietitians remember that everything is um, government based. And so there is no copywriting or anything. They could put things in their PowerPoints or they could uh, make handouts and there's no worries about any of that. They, they could use it all as they wish with their with their um, clients. Oh, that's that's even better, right? Yep. Yeah, 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 <laughs> because that's always a concern as well. Right. Yes. Especially yeah. with like, nobody wants to be sued for something. Right. So, right. <laughs> that's a whole nother podcast, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, great. I appreciate you sharing everything that you have to offer. 
So I do have a question about, because a, a big thing that we're hearing about lately is the specific details. Could you share the specific details about the proposed changes in the dietary guidance statements? Okay. Yeah. So let me go back a little bit about this. So it is it's a draft guidance. And when we say draft guidance, that means that, you know, it's not a regulation yet. It's in it's in draft form. And so in March of this year, that came out, March 24th. And what it's doing is it's providing food manufacturers with recommendations on how and when to use these statements. And I'll talk a little bit more about what exactly they are on the label of their food products. Because we're trying to show, um, you know, we're trying to promote good nutrition, more consistency in labeling um, and, um, you know, assist consumers in actually making more informed choices. And so all of this is part of FDA's overall goal to help reduce the burden of chronic disease um, and advance health equity in through improved nutrition. And that particular statement is an important statement because that's the goal of all of the things with nutrition. So when we think about the eating patterns in the U.S., they don't align with the diet dietary recommendations, right? Most people in the U.S., they're not eating enough fruits, enough vegetables, dairy, whole grains. They have too much saturated fat, sodium, added sugars. And so poor nutrition plays a role in this whole chronic and preventable disease. Um, you know, when we're looking at heart disease, diabetes, obesity. So these dietary guidance statements, again, are just going to be one more tool if they go through to, to be a regulation to help people understand more about their food. And so let me give you some examples. They could be either a graphic or a written statement. And so let's say you had a, a packet or you had a whole wheat um, bread. And so on there, the company could write, make half your grains whole grain. And so it's just a statement. And then it's kind of a reminder to that consumer, like, oh, whole grains, I'm, I'm making a good choice. Or let's say they pick up a bag of shrimp. Uh, it could say seafood, including shrimp is part of a nutritious dietary pattern. Again, that kind of reminder, like, oh, this is something good that I'm picking up. It's a positive, you know, bag of uh, broccoli or something, you know, vary your veggies or, you know, focus, make half your plate, fruits and vegetables, all of those statements. And there's a whole list of them that, that actually industry, the food industry could actually put on their packages. And so this is just kind of a nice way to promote, again, that consistency labeling, give people some idea of, you know, what it is when they are going to choose a food, what that is. Now, if dietitians were interested, again, I said this was proposed in March, they could write comments online or um, in the mail, they could send it as well. And they could do that by June 26th of this year. And, uh, and they could say, yeah, I do really support this. I think it's great. I think it would work with my consumers or my patients. And so they could be part of the the activity that goes on in the FDA. And we love not only when industry writes, but we we want um, consumers and health professionals to write us and comment on these things as well. Yes. And that's excellent because one of my follow-up questions to what you were just saying is as a dietitian, thinking about ways that they can then use the information to better advise their clients on healthy eating habits right. and that you already have a built-in amazing call to action, which you were saying is kind right. of like putting these messages on the food. And then you're just telling your clients, okay, go ahead and look for X or go ahead and look for right. this. And it'll right. tell them. And then that's something easy that somebody can then, then can go do. 
right. the dietitian has it easier because they can kind of give them something concrete to do, but right. then the patient or a client even easier because a lot of times they feel lost with all this information. It is, you know, there's so much about food that has changed over the last 30 years and, and, you know, all of a sudden we're being bombarded and the consumer today is like, oh, is this food good? Because last year it was and this year we yeah. had it. And, and so, right, these continuity of messages are going to be a better way. So people know like, oh, yes, I know this is a good part of, you know, to have in my diet. It's something good that I could add. I love it. So we have to make comments by June 26th. So right. everyone right. listening, make comments by June 26th. Please do. And that you're supported. And actually on the site, on our FDA.gov site, you could actually see graphics and you'll see how they actually put them on the packages. And so you'll see crackers and I think spinach, bag spinach and all of that kind of stuff. And, and you could actually read through and see how it all is going to work. And uh, it's kind of interesting. And they could also put the uh, my plate symbol on there as well. And so that's also kind of, again, that message. We used to put, a, I think, I don't know if you remember, we used to have the food guide pyramid used to yes. be on packages. And so this is that same kind of idea that you can put that as well. Yes. And I, I'm, I'm kind of chuckling because I remember when I was seeing clients, they would <laughs> turn around and be like, that little man that's running up the steps, he's not, he's not that realistic because he's so skinny. And I was just like, okay, well, we'll let them know. <laughs> yeah, that was a little bit short lived that that campaign. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I'm sure you remember going through that with the comments yeah. that you must oh, have received. Yeah. <laughs> that's a... That was a good one. How about so could you talk a little bit about the key considerations behind the FDA's decision to amend the exclusion of salt substitutions on food labeling? Of course. Yeah, this was something I don't know if your listeners had listened to it, but the White House had a national strategy on hunger, nutrition and health. And they had um, a whole day series of that. It was really, really interesting. And they haven't done something like that in about 50 years. So it was really wonderful. So as part of that in March as well, the FDA decided to amend the exclusion of salt substitutes. But again, remember, this is a draft guidance. And this one um, goes until August 8th that you can write comments for this one. And so currently right now, when we look at salt substitutes, they're not permitted to be listed in place of salt in about 250 foods. We have what we call standards of identification for many foods. And so for food and beverage brands, they they want to allow a little bit more flexibility in ingredients so we can actually meet the, the goal of lowering altogether sodium altogether together. So let me go back a little bit with that too. In October of 21, the FDA approached the food industry and said, could you reduce your sodium in the next two and a half years by 12%? So the average amount that people are taking in is about 3,400 milligrams. So bringing it down to 12% will bring it to about 3,000 milligrams. And that'll be in June of, of next year if that, that works out. 
that still is not the recommendation because as dietitians, we know the recommendation is 23 milligram, 2300 milligrams a day for people 14 and over. But this is just one more way that now we're going to start looking at foods if they choose foods like um, cheese, frozen peas, ketchup, canned tuna, that they could start to use these salt substitutes. And now the overall intake of sodium goes down. So you see, it's kind of like a multi-part uh, plan, uh, you know, multi-pronged plan to kind of reduce that sodium. Just lowering the number wasn't doing it. You know, you just keep saying, oh, I want it. I, I don't know when you started what the the sodium recommendation was, but I remember it being 3,500 when I first began, when I first practiced as a dietitian and it just kept getting lower, you know, yes. almost every year and stuff. And that's not working. And so this, you know, salt substitutes, that's just going to be one more way. Now we have to make sure when we, when we look at the, they, they've included 140 out of those 250 foods that actually can allow the salt substitutes. So there are things like uh, canned products, like applesauce, corn, green beans, mushrooms, um, things like oysters, peas, Pacific salmon, tomatoes, tuna, eggnog, those kind of things can all use the salt substitutes. The, there's 140 of them. And we do have to watch. So the dietitian's kind of job or education will be helping those that cannot have, you know, salt substitutes. So when we look at a salt substitute, instead of regular salt, which has sodium chlorine, Chloride, they instead put potassium chloride. So they're taking out that sodium part. And for some people, people that have, um, not everybody, but some people that have kidney disease, heart disease, high blood pressure, liver disease, diabetes, that extra potassium would not be good for them. So they're going to have to learn how to look at the label and read it and make sure that they're, you know, that they're not doing any harm to their, to their care plan. So that's going to be key for the consumer and the dietitian to work together on that. That's where I'm thinking would be, you mentioned earlier with that video, mm -hmm. like a video resource would be an excellent idea there, especially somebody that, you know, if you have a consumer, that's not going to be reading a, a long document. Right. Right. Just like kind of send them to, here's the website to view this video. Let me know. Let's go view it together. And what Let's kind of questions do you have? Yep. And, you know, and this will be great. So it's not in, in regulation yet. So um, I'm sure all of those education materials, they always follow. So, you know, if, if indeed this does go through and it's all, it's all done by, let's say this is August 8th is the comments, you know, let's say it's done by next year. And then there'll be probably all those education materials that will follow to educate consumers, make sure that they know, um, you know, make sure that they realize what they're reading on the label and all of that. So, you know, it's all interesting how it works it, and everybody gets to come comment in it. It's not just FDA coming up with these regulations. We have advisory committees and, and that type of thing. So, you know, there's all different kinds of people on these advisory committees. It's physicians, it's, it could be dietitians, it could be industry, it could be academia, whoever is on there. So everybody puts their input as they're doing these, these draft guidances. Yeah. And I, that's what I was just thinking about. Like, I can't imagine collating all that information yeah. with all these comments and then formulating, okay, this is where we're at. Like this, yeah. I'm sure and, then you, 
And you have to work with industry too. They they've known about much of that. This is go, you know this is ongoing, and they have to have some time to reformulate if they want to, and you know reformulate and packages and all of that. So nothing is done overnight. And a lot of people say, oh, things take a little bit longer in the government, but it's it's there's lots of players involved, lots of things involved that go on with this, and so you know it has to be done right. And so that's why it takes a little bit of time so it's done right. Yes, but you also kind of explain like the process because if you're not in it, Mm. working directly with it, you don't realize what's happening behind the scenes. And like there's so much going on behind the scenes as you have been explaining that it makes sense why this is taking and it should take this long because we don't want to just decide to do something and then all of a sudden here's the the regulation when it didn't go through what it needed to go through in order to to get to where you're at. Because I do kind of think like trying to get clients or patients to follow this 2300 recommendation. Like, I mean, I remember one time when I was doing home care, I had to go, they, the home care nurse asked me to go talk to the patient and it was a 93 year old woman. And I had to go give her a low salt diet. So I walked in her house and like, she was 93. So most of the stuff she did was canned foods because she wasn't able to like cook as well as she used to. And she basically told me like, I'm 93, I'm not going to go on a low salt diet. And I couldn't argue with her. Right. Like I don't have the (laughs) and affordability as well, you know, um, you know, that comes into play as well. And canned foods might be, you know, a lower cost and and fit in the budget better. And uh, even storage, a lot of people don't have a full refrigerator or something. And so, yeah, so that's why working with industry as well, you know, that their products, not only in the retail level, but also in the food service level, that's all important because, you know, the hospitals and that type of thing that are buying for large quantities, for example, that need for their patients, low salt, there's not a lot of, you know, a a lot of choices for them to do. So this kind of, you know, it's kind of brings up the topic, brings up the conversation. And so industry has to play into this as well. Yes. And you have, I mean, it goes, all goes back to meeting the patient where they're at. Mm -hmm. And there's many patients that, and I'm sure like many listeners, especially if you're a dietitian counseling patients, a lot, it's hard, the 2300s hard. So I, I like yeah. that the fact that this, they're trying to make changes to adjust that. So it's not as low with the salt substitutes. Right. So right. that's, thank you for explaining all that. You're welcome. And as a dietitian, what topics should we be aware of in the next year? Do you, is there any that you can highlight that are upcoming for our audience? Yeah, you know, um, we have several draft guidances, more things that are on their way, and dietitians might want to comment on them. We have um, plant-based alternative milks, and so that has become a hot topic, and you can imagine that. So when we look at these plant-based alternative milks, they are milk alternatives, sorry about that. You know, there's all different views of this, right? The, The consumer now has all of these choices, and they're looking at, you know, oh, I could buy almond, I could buy oat milk. I could buy this, I could buy that. And the agency's take on this is, okay, well, you know, it's okay. We're going to let you call it milk, even though, you know, these are not dairy products. And we realize that consumers do understand, you know, almond milk is made out of almonds or something like that. But what we did find out with the focus groups is that they did not understand that the nutrient difference was very different between regular milk and let's say, for example, an almond milk. And so we are asking, 
asking for a descriptor to be on the packages that actually compare the, the um, plant-based milk to regular milk. So people start to understand, oh, the protein is different or, oh, the vitamin D is different. Whatever it is that might be different, it would then be, you know, highlighted. And so that was actually closed the common period, but they reopened it. And sometimes that happens when things are a little bit more controversial. And so they reopened it again. And now people could comment till July 31st. And so just watching that, even in the news and watching different publications and stuff like that, you know, seeing what the farmer says, a dairy farmer says, compared to maybe what, you know, somebody in the almond industry is saying, you know, it's all kind of interesting that everybody has their side of the story. So that's one of the guidances. There's also guidance about the word healthy. You know, should we put healthy, the word healthy on foods? Should we have a label that has a little, you know, symbol or something that has, you know, that we put on our foods? How many things can we put on a label, right? You know, all of that. So that's also, you know, part of the in discussion now, what exactly is healthy? There's been lots of articles and stuff like that about, oh, look at FDA is not calling such and such food healthy. And because it doesn't meet the descriptors, you know, in the draft guidance. So again, you know, another place where we kind of have to work through that to see, you know, how that how that's going to fit into the food industry. We had what is called the food code. I don't know if everybody knows what the food code is, but the food code is all of the recommendations for foodborne to to uh, prevent foodborne illness that the states and the local authorities use to mitigate all foodborne illness at retail level. So that's in, in you know restaurants and grocery stores, that kind of thing. And the food code gets updated every once in a while. And this is its 30th year actually in, in existence. And everybody uses the food code. Now, if they have something that is even more restrictive than the food code, they can certainly use that, but most everybody uses the food code. And we had some changes to that too. The FDA reduced the barrier to food donations. So, you know, food donations was always kind of an iffy topic. And so they're clarifying for the first time that food donations from a retail food establishment is acceptable as long as proper food safety practices are followed. And so we know that one third of all the food in the U.S., uh, goes uneaten. And as dietitians, we, you know, we kind of cringe at that number yes. to realize that there's so many people that need food. And so this is nice. This barrier was lifted. It was put into the food code. So everybody could look at how that has to be handled. And, and maybe we could start distributing that food instead of, you know, throwing it out. For a little bit more, I consider a little bit more fun regulation, I guess, if you want to call it that. <laughs> um, uh, dining outdoors with dogs. Yeah. The FDA has finally said, okay, as long as the state um, where it also agrees, um, but that's always been something, let's say in California or something that they've, that they've allowed dogs. And so now it's going to be legal if, if indeed the states agree with that. So kind of a more fun kind of law. And the one that I've been following myself, I just find it really, really interesting is all of these kind of online groceries and meal kits and everything, you know, what are people actually getting? Do they realize it? Is it at temperature? Does it have food, uh, food allergen information on it? Does it have ingredient information 
on it. You know, what is the consumer actually getting? You know, what is that platform? So back in, I think it was October of 21, we met with the, the FDA met with, you know, they call it e-commerce. And these are, again, these online groceries and meal kit people and, and, you know, even Uber Eats and all of that kind of thing and met with them and said, you know, you know, how are we going to handle this? How are we looking at all this? How are we informing the consumer? Are we being safe? You know, what are the, what are we doing in this arena kind of? So that's also another place as of July 24th, people can make comments about that as well. And so that one, I'm having fun just watching how it's all kind of progressing and all of that. And I've never seen so much, you know, at one time it used to be maybe one or two places you could get meat from. And now it seems like every farm or whatever is, is a lot, you know, is sending out, you know, maybe meat products or chicken or, you know, different cheeses or that kind of thing. So even in that arena as well. So that's going to be very interesting. Yes. I was just thinking like, I can't even keep up with the names. Like in the beginning, it was like, hello, fresh. And there was a couple right. competitive. And now there's like, I can't even, if you asked me to write a list of all of them, I would miss probably most of them because yeah. there's like a new one popping up every day. Yeah. And now, you know, the, the Hollywood stars are getting involved and all of that. Oh, but, my. you know, we have to understand, you know, if I'm sh we're shipping something to Alaska, we're shipping something to Vermont, we're shipping something to Miami, Florida, you know, how is it all getting to all these places? What is the temperature? If yes. it's going, you know, to, you know, we start off with adults usually and, and many of these meal kits are for the whole family, but, you know, are there allergens listed? Can somebody realize what's on there? You know, do they know where to get that information? And so, yeah, it's going to be really interesting, you know, to see what happens. Yeah. And then the dining the with dogs. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking dogs. dining with dogs, you may have, I'd be curious to find out if you report anybody writing in about cats next. Yeah. I cats don't know. next. You never know. Right. Yeah. You know? And you then the plant-based alternatives, I think with the milk, that would, I, I just can't wait to see the educational material on that. Yeah. That's going to be yeah. because yeah. trying to keep up with all that stuff, that's going to be like a if you guys you know, part of that, the industry you know. looks at, you know, many of these things don't even have to be their shelf stable, but yet they're in containers that look like a milk carton. They're in a cold area. They, most of them really don't have to be because they're again, like I said, shelf stable and all of that. So they're treated like milk, but it, you know, does, is that confusing the consumer? And so that'll be interesting to see. And that's what, that the dietitian should comment, you know, how do they think that that fits? It actually has a place, you know, uh, we're not, we're not disparaging the product itself. We just want to make sure that, you know, we've heard some stories about people putting this in baby bottles. Do they understand that it's not the same as whole, you know, a dairy milk, a bovine milk, you know, they're understanding that almond milk is not a bovine milk, yes. in the nutrition difference. Yeah. And then also too, like the protein, cause like protein. all those levels vary. So like, yeah. what are they actually getting? So I think, yeah. That's one I'll be watching myself. So again, you know, some of these have so much sugar in them, you know, are people realizing that, yes, it might be very tasty, but it, it's almost like you're drinking, you know, <laughs> you know, you're drinking a can of soda or something, right? They are tasty, but that's why they're tasty because of all the added sugar. Yes. It's a really good point with that. Yeah. Diana, could you share one story or analogy example showcasing your work over the, the last couple decades? I, I 
I have to say I've had such a, a fun career. I really have. I've gotten to do so many things, but probably the one area that I loved probably the most was food safety. And so I had to figure out a way as an educator to come across to all different kinds of groups. So, you know, was it the four-year-old playing outside, the mom changing diapers, uh, the school food service personnel feeding, you know, hundreds of teenagers, uh, the food bank person. And so for many, many years, I worked with, um, and I'm sure a lot of people have seen this over the years, at the time it was new, but like the gel-based lotion that, you know, simulates germs on your hands or, or whatever. And, and so we used a campaign, it was called the Fight Back Campaign, BAC, uh, for bacteria. And so this germ was a green germ, and he kind of represented, you know, all the core practices of food safety, clean, separate, cook, and chill. And, uh, and so it was visual. And it was fun. And we'd go out to all different kinds of groups and do all different kinds of outreach. I used to have a tabletop display. People would put their hands underneath and see the germs. You know, they weren't really germs. It was just the 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 um, lotion being lit up. But it was kind of a nice message about washing your hands and singing the happy birthday song and, and all of those things that we now kind of know all about. I used to have as well a germ tent. And it was actually a tent that families could go through and they could see the germs on themselves. So uh, they'd all get stickers when they came out, if they were, you know, clean, if their hands were clean and all that. So I really liked food safety. I really liked teaching it. I think it's so important. You know, during COVID, we saw it was so important, uh, the pandemic. And, and you know, that was one of the, probably um, I did state fairs. I did all different kinds of groups. So it was one of my better memories of, of uh, all the different things we can do just even at a public health level. I did a food allergy conference at a time when really people were very confused about allergens in the school, in the school place, you know, how to handle, you know, more and more children were having food allergies. And we did a conference and I, it took one year to put together and it was with pediatricians that, and allergists and all different kinds of pulmonary people. And we had speakers from all over and we had about 800 people come to this conference and we had food vendors. It was a time when the word gluten was brand new. Nobody really knew what that meant, gluten, gluten-free. And so in, I worked with moms. You know, I worked with this one mom um, that had three kids with uh, food allergies and she had waited for an appointment for a particular physician in New York City for a very, very long time. And her poor little baby was just covered in, in like a hive type of situation every time that she would feed him. And it turns out that it was um, that the baby was playing with the dog food. And so oh, wow. whatever was in the dog food was affecting the baby. And that's what was the end. And so just working with these moms and what they went through and the things that they had to do and and even planning for a vacation, it just educated me. I, I never realized. I just thought, oh, everybody just goes to wherever, you know, at the time, it's different now, but you know, you just go to Disney or you go whatever, but it wasn't like that for them. And so the education that they gave me was was invaluable just as a as a human being and as a dietitian, just to see what people go through in their homes when they have children with food allergies. Just amazing. So I would say those are the two top. I, I've had uh tons, tons more, but those were the two that really affected me in a in a great way.
Yeah, and they're both really memorable too. Thank you for sharing, especially the fight back. And I still see that every once yeah. in a while. Yeah, it's a yeah. partnership with all agencies, so it's not an FDA program. It's a it's from the National Partnership for Food Safety, and so it's actually a, an organization that does all that. It's a one one person run group, uh, mm-hmm. but it's a wonderful wonderful group that does that. Yes, yes, we I, th- I believe we had it was Shelly Feast, I believe. Yeah, yeah, Shelly. Oh my God, she's fabulous. Yeah, and then yeah. we had we had a podcast episode, a couple. Maybe it was last year or sometime about that. Okay. On food safety. Yeah. So, yeah. So how about, could you say one bottom line takeaway for the audience? And I know we talked about so many things, Diana, so this is going to be a little <laughs> difficult to narrow down, but if you could just tell dietitians one thing, and I know what I would say, but I'm going to let you talk. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, I think when, you know, you look at, you know, information. Uh, interestingly enough, our commissioner now is Dr. Califf, and um, and he's a cardiologist, and, and he talks a lot about misinformation that's on his platform. And and at first, when he first threw out that out, I, you know, I was kind of listening to him and stuff like that. And then the more I kind of got into that, I thought, you know, he's right. And he says it's one of the number one reasons for, you know, different kind of disease states and this kind of thing. And, and it's true. If you don't have the right information, you're not going to do the right thing. And so these sites, you know, these scientifically based sites, such as the FDA, we're not the only one, but such as the FDA, are really a place that people could find the information to be trustworthy and they could feel confident in what they're reading or, or you know, or what they're, they're looking at. And so, you, you know, again, we go back to that pregnant mom and she's wondering how much of that seafood and what kind of seafood am I supposed to have when I'm pregnant, she could go right there, find the information. It's correct. It's up to date. It's scientific. And so I think as, as dietitians, you know, healthcare providers, that type of thing, we should always kind of steer our people are, that we're working with towards sites that are actually science-based. You know, I know the internet is just a vast array of all different kinds <laughs> of information and it's overwhelming. It really is. But maybe if people were kind of fun to those sites that that really are going to give them the right information and good information, you know, things would be a lot better. So I would really say that that's, you know, the bottom line, you know, where are people getting what they're talking about or what they're listening to? Yes. And you said, I was just going to say bookmark this website and for similar reasons, because there's no way I could have summarized everything you said into (laughs) one bottom line takeaway. I would have not passed that test. So thank you for sharing that. Anytime, anytime. And all the information, got to check the website out and keep up to date with this information, such great information. Thank you. So now I want to ask you a couple fun questions before we wrap up. Of course. And I'm going to give you a choice because we have a couple things coming up and we are recording this episode right before Mother's Day and Memorial Day. So I want to ask you your choices. You can either talk about Mother's Day or Memorial Day with this question, but what is the most unique gift given or received? On Memorial Day or on on Mother's Day? Yeah, that's probably a Mother's Day one, yes. 
So I'm not a mother, but I'm a godmother, but um, I still get gifts, which is really nice, actually. So, uh, you know, I got the gift this year of my niece is uh, pregnant. And so that to me is Aww. a gift. We haven't had a baby in the family in, in a long time, in about 30 years. And so we are just super excited. And I'm constantly sending her, um, you know, all different kinds of information. And she's sucking it all up. She loves it all. And, and um each week we get a, each week or every two weeks, we get a picture of the, you know, what the baby is looking like, if it's a sonogram or, or matching it to a fruit or a vegetable. Right now, it looks like an ear of corn. It's nice. the size of an ear of corn. So, so that's been a gift for me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. congratulations. Thank you. I know we're so excited. <laughs> Yeah, you're going to, then you're going to be buying lots of gifts there. I, so. I already have a bag already started. <laughs> yeah, yeah. With all the cute little, such a fun age. It is. How about your favorite food or drink? And this could have been favorite a Mother's food. Day celebration or a Memorial Day celebration, whatever your pick. My favorite food, and it's kind of a weird, weird food, but once I introduce it to people, they come back and they go, yeah, I like that too. I love um, to just walk around. I'll go to a farmer's market or something and just walk around and eat sweet peas out of the pod. It's my oh, nice. favorite. It's my favorite <laughs> food ever. And so you could catch me in, and there's only a brief time. It's only about two or three weeks well, in my area anyways, where I live, that you could get sweet peas in a pod and uh and uh so it's a fun time i wait for it i can't wait till it comes and then my second favorite food is uh chestnuts and so i love my chestnuts boiled and i introduce people to that too and they go wow i can't believe that it's really good so yeah yeah i grew up in a very when... ethnic house and so we have <laughs> lots and lots of foods like that that we ate and i tell people all the time when i was i worked at a grocery store when i I was 16. That was my first job. And I remember a can, a can of beets coming by, you know, I was checking it out. And I said to the lady, I go, oh, beets come in a can because my mother really canned everything and everything was bought fresh. And so we hardly ever really went to a grocery store. We had milk delivered, chicken delivered, eggs delivered. And and so my idea of a grocery store was really, I, I, I don't have any real memories of it when I was young because she just made everything. And so it was a nice way to grow up. Very nice. Chestnuts. You got me thinking about chestnuts at the holidays oh, now. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> chestnuts, the best, the best. How about last question? How about fun activity or tradition? You can talk about either one on either Mother's Day or Memorial Day weekend. Oh, Monday, let's see, Mother's Day or Memorial Day weekend. A fun tradition. I don't really know if we have one. Usually on Memorial Day weekend, we go to a place called Presque Isle, which is not that far from us. And uh, and we just go bike riding. So I always connect uh, Memorial Day with bike riding. Um, oh, and nice. so, um, you know, so that would be my memory. Every, really every Memorial Day, I get my bike out, get it all ready. And we usually go on our first uh, bike ride around. It's a place in Pennsylvania. So that's usually what we do, but. Yeah. Well, that counts as both a fun activity and a tradition. Yeah. So very <laughs> nice. <laughs> Way to wrap up. That's so Diana, thank you for being on the show and sharing your insights with us today. We Anytime. greatly appreciate it. And I'll make sure that we put all of the resources and links that we discussed today. Excellent. And to our audience, 
Thanks for listening and please tune in again and share your comments and feedback on our site. Have a great day and enjoy a healthier lifestyle with the 411 in mind. For more nutrition content, visit consultant360.com.